Today is June 6, 2020. We as a nation have just been through a very stressful and challenging week of protests, riots, and expressions of anger and outrage that we haven't seen in a long time. The murder of George Floyd has once again brought to light the racial injustices that are so prevalent in many areas of our country. There are no easy answers. While I'll never be able to fully understand what it's like to be black in America, I want you to know I stand with you. Racism and injustice must end. Black lives matter. We must work together to understand each other, to love each other. Because in the end, love wins. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to empathize, to have empathy? Today on the My Story podcast, we'll be talking about these things. The story you're about to hear was recorded just as the news of George Floyd's death was being publicized and before the protests began. Belinda Bauman is the founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating with women in the world's worst conflict zones. Belinda is also the co-founder of and the visionary behind the hashtag Silence is Not Spiritual, a campaign calling churches to break the silence on violence against women. She's a speaker and contributor to Newsweek's The Daily Beast, Red Talent Living, Huffington Post, and Christianity Today. Our conversation is a bit longer than normal, but I want to encourage you to listen to the end. I think you'll be inspired and motivated to Look at yourself and how you empathize with others. And at the end, I'll be giving away a copy of Belinda's book, Brave Souls. You'll want to listen for your opportunity on how to win this book. So here's my conversation with Belinda Bauman. Well, today on the show, I have Belinda Bauman. Belinda, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Oh my gosh, Conrad, it is so good to be with you. Hey, this, I just spent like two weeks binge listening to your podcast and I am genuinely honored to be interviewed by you. Thank you so much. So I just totally recommend that people go back and like eat everything that you've put out there. It's been, it was so good. It's been such such a fun process to connect with people and to to help them tell their story. Mm. You know, that's I've gotten. I, I grew up in a culture where story was huge. You know, my my grandparents told stories, and and so just hearing people's stories to me is is fascinating. Yeah, because we all come from such a different place yeah. and have different experiences, and you have some crazy out of this world experiences from what I've read. I mean, so Belinda, tell me who is Belinda Bauman? <laughs> yeah. So I, I have trouble with that question. Um, and I know that's really strange. It's not for any like existential identity crisis that I'm having that I have trouble with that question. It just, there are points in my own story that even I think it sounds surreal. <laughs> I, if I had to define myself, I would say that I'm an educator turned advocate. I, um, I started out, um, in rural Wisconsin. That was where my home was. And, uh, I was the first 
person in my family, even my extended family, to actually finish high school. Hmm. So we were um, we were of the mindset that um, working with your hands uh, was good, honest work, and that you didn't necessarily need to get educated. And you certainly didn't need to move outside of Burlington, Wisconsin. And that, you know, growing up in that as a girl, uh, the baby of the family, um, to uh, a husband and wife, waitress and factory worker, um, I quickly identified the fact that I was... I was not normal by any stretch of the imagination um, mm. in my own family or even in the community that I was living in. Mm. I had, um, I had this itch to see what was out there and not just, not just from a, you know, hop in the car and road trip, but like, opening up a map as a kid and looking at Africa and going, holy socks, it's a continent, not a country kind of realizations. And I guess maybe knowing what I know now, looking back at Belinda as a 13 year old, I wish I could say to her, hey, you know what? You're growing up with, with a lot of narrative. Um, from the culture that you're in. Don't worry. You get to take a lot of that with you, but don't be afraid to shed it too, because mm. some of it's not healthy. Mm. The, you know, the way that I viewed outsiders, the way that my family viewed outsiders, the way my community kind of thought you ain't from around here <laughs> perspective. Um, I quickly came to understand that, you know, after leaving for, I, I actually launched into the big University of Wisconsin-Madison, 40,000. Huge step. Huge then, right? step, right? Graduated yeah. from high school and, and uh, moved on to the university, wanted to become a teacher. And while I was there, um, I think I confronted this idea for the first time in my life that um, some folk were tribe and some folk were traders. And... Mm -hmm put some words to it, you know, coming from what I came from and also was able to say, man, I don't, this doesn't feel healthy for me because I think I'm an outsider. I think by all standards, the way I think and the way I want to view people in this world um, puts me in the traitor category. And that mm. was scary for me. Um, I married a fantastic man who had a release some, from Burlington, Wisconsin, this is that point where my two um, young adult sons do the little air violin playing <laughs> because what I'm about to say, got, listeners, you got to believe me. My husband and I were born eight hours apart in the same hospital. Our grandparents used to play cards together. You know, it, we were... Our the toast, my father-in-law's toast at our wedding was I the babies were in the nursery together and we knew they were destined. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are like, really? Okay. <laughs> but Stephen is an amazing man and he 
had the same itch, which was um, a relief to me in a mm. way. He went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison too, did a business degree. But honestly, my teaching degree and his business degree went out the window when we um, decided that we were going to, after two years of being married, um, go join an organization called Mercy Ships. Hmm. which is the largest uh, non-governmental hospital ship. Um, it was their flagship at the time, eons and decades ago, when we, in 1994, when we left for it. Our parents thought we were crazy. Our whole community thought we were crazy because we were going to go um, scrub decks and not use our degrees and not get paid and actually have to fundraise to hmm. do this. Um, wow. Yeah. So what, what was the motivation behind that other than what you said about, you know, looking at the world and saying, Hey, I want to go explore this. Yeah. What was that? What was that motivation that finally made you to say yes to this? Yeah, that's a really, well, I think I said it a little earlier. I think it was still a super healthy combination of curiosity, um, which is an awesome thing. I'm, Curiosity is the backbone of story. It's what makes us ask each other, hey, uh, my, my life seems to be intersecting with your life. I'm, I want to know about you. Mm -hmm. That is an amazing synergistic generative point. And I, though I couldn't put any words to it, I felt it in my gut. I felt it in my soul. Um, Stephen felt the same thing. But leaving for Africa was like that whole next level. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think it was we, he and I had engaged, uh, engaged a faith journey together where we decided that we were going to walk through this life as people that really believed that there was a higher power, um, that we called him God and that he... Um, that he engaged this world in the most extraordinary way by um, actually putting on skin like, mm -hmm. and coming like in our, in our faith tradition, he came to this world with skin on like in some narratives and some faith narratives, like deities will come and spend a day on the planet or they'll in, you know, the terms of empathy, you, they slip on our shoes walk around for a little while, like the gods and the Titans, right? They don't like it because it's hard. And then they mm -hmm. hit the road because being a God is way better. Right? <laughs> yeah. <And> it's perks, <laughs> right? Totally. And I don't know, in, in our Christian faith narrative, we kind of explored it for the first time and went, whoa, like this God didn't hit the road, like stuck around, came as a baby and then stuck around put on our skin. And then like, it says that he felt everything that we felt and he experienced everything that was common to us. And then like, didn't just live in the skin, but actually our faith tradition says he died in skin too, which means that he felt the pain of death. That for me was the deal clencher. I went, A, that's like superhero level story. Mm. Hello, right? Fascinating. Second was he seemed to have done that for no other reason other than he loved me. And growing up as an outsider in rural Midwest, 
knowing that I was loved and accepted the way I was made blew me out of the water and changed my life. Mm -hmm. So Stephen and I kind of looked at each other and went, okay, if this is true, if this is all real, we were really young, right? We were still in our early twenties and we were like, okay, we think this is real. We think this is cool, kosher. And we kind of think that it means something like to the way we live on this planet, Mm -hmm. if we're going to say it's real. So shoot, what does that mean? I mean, what do you do when you're 20? You're like, well, I think we should like join the Peace Corps or like we should like go live in a tent where people need help, you know? And we're like, you're a business dude and I'm an educator. What can we do? Mm. So this was like early Google. (laughs) (laughs) The searches were limited when we actually searched it, but there it was. Mercy Ships was, was one of those super intriguing places it was a hospital ship where good things were happening um and they seemed to want young people like us so you would think that being a hospital ship you'd have to have some kind of education in medical yeah you know well being well i think that the (laughs) operative word there is ship then hospital right (laughs) so It was really beneficial for us because a ship needs lots of folk and it was a faith-based ship. So we actually entered our, our runway onto, onto the mercy ships freeway was um, to come and help uh, all the people that wanted to join the ship permanently, nurses, doctors, you know, salty dog Scottish engineers. And we had, at one point, we had 42 different nationalities and 47 different denominations. Hmm. And I literally remember walking the deck with a dude from the UN when we were docked in London doing, we were procuring goods and services. We were, um, we were actually invited to parliament and able to, um, talk about the nature of healing, um, the kind of healing that we were doing in pre and post conflict war zones. Mm -hmm. Um, and the guy from the UN looked at me and he's, He's looking around and I got to the point in the standard talking where I said 42 nationalities and 47 different Christian denominations, as well as other faith expressions. He said, wait a second, like you understand that you should have had a number of civil wars already just here on the ship (laughs) based on what you just said, right? And I agreed with him. I was like, absolutely. Absolutely. But our work on the ship, Stephen and I, and Lord knows why um, our God seemed to direct us that way, was to help everyone kind of find this common ground of the way we were going to live together. So we had like some pretty fundamental understandings and everybody had to walk through that door. So we ran a three-month program called Um, the DTS or the discipleship training school. And we talked about, Hey, when you get into a conflict with somebody, what do you do? Right. Hey, when you 
when you have a, um, when somebody is getting more resources than you and you're upset about it, what do you do? Um, when you don't feel understood or when loneliness overtakes you, what do we do? So kind of trying to find this common grace that we could walk around in on this 422 foot ship um, with 500 people, right? So we had literally like less than a foot to jump around in (laughs) on whatever level you lived in, right? And there were also, you know, at the time there were three ORs. It was a fully functioning clinic. We had a a school for the children of of our people. And um, it was like a, a city, that was functioning. So where did you go in uh, in the world? Where did you go? Where did you dock? What yeah. people did you serve? Yeah. So everywhere. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> we, we flew to, we flew to Africa, um, which was Ghana. West Africa was our first, um, our first international destination outside of landing in Amsterdam. And when I got there, I went, see, I told you it was a continent, not a country. <laughs> <laughs> We actually lived in Ghana for a year in docking in uh, Tema Takarati and Tamale, which are the three main port cities. Um, and it was magical. Everything about it for me, even the even the hard parts were just, I, friends would say, Belinda, you are more yourself. You're more you in places like that than you are when you're back home. And something that resonated deeply with me, I went, okay, is that just me? Or, you know, is it, is it just that human beings are like my favorite thing in the whole planet? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, wherever that takes me, as long as they're there and I get to ask questions, I'm good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we ended up doing a whole West Africa thing we actually, the joke is we signed up for six months. So this is going to be, you know, our gig, our mm-hmm. give back to the world gig. This right. is going to shape who and we are. And you'll get back to your real life. And right? That, right. The real, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause you know, rural Wisconsin was real life at that point. <laughs> we ended up staying um, almost eight years, right. Wow. Within the organization, six mm-hmm. years overseas. And so those six years, took us uh, West Africa, um, Ghana, Togo, Benin, Guinea-Bissau. Um, it kind of like that bump in the armpit. <laughs> A beautiful area, right? Um, mm-hmm. Went to Timbuktu. It was incredible on a camel. There is such a place, there right? Is. It's incredible. <laughs> and you get there on a camel. I'm not kidding. It was incredible. <laughs> and then the ship sailed um, down to South Africa and we spent a year in South Africa um, and then did a nine month outreach in hold on to your socks, Madagascar, which is wow. literally my favorite place in the whole world. What, uh, why? Madagascar. What it is about Madagascar that makes it your favorite place? Well, it, it, it's, it's a self-contained Island, but the people there are this incredible mix of Asia and Africa Um all the best things of Asia and all the best things of Africa and just um, the climate itself. There's, I'm going to get this wrong, but I know there's more than five individual climates that 
exists on the mm. island itself. It's the wow. only place in the world that you can like play with lemurs. Like I'm mm. not kidding. Like lemurs wow. sitting on my shoulders and <laughs> they are super cute and super fun, right? Tortoises. You know, I have to say about the only thing I know about Madagascar is from the movie. Everybody's. <laughs> exactly. So the penguins of Madagascar, uh-uh. The penguins live in South Africa. They're at the t- at the Cape of South Africa. That's where they are. So they are, they're total immigrants in that movie. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. No lions either. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up, and then we scooted around to, um, up through, Stephen and I flew out and went up through Asia and back around to home when we finally left Mercy Ships, moved on to work for a couple other organizations. Coming back home was about as foreign a thing as I had ever experienced. <laughs> I guess from living in that kind of culture all those years yes. to, yeah. Yep. That was it. Wow. So we stuck around for a little while, did, like I said, did a couple of degrees, worked for a few organizations that we absolutely adored the people that we were working with. In full disclosure, we were working for faith-based organizations, um, Christian faith-based organizations. And by that time, we had chosen to identify as evangelical. Now, I realize at this point, a lot of your listeners are like, nope, going to turn this baby off right now, but please don't, right? <laughs> Remember? Yeah, please don't. Please don't. This is an amazing story. So. <laughs> I identify as an outsider. <laughs> so, yeah, becoming part of this really um, interesting group of people that that technically, like at our roots, believe that there's there's this good news in the world. That's what evangelical means it means evangelion the good news and that we're supposed to be like as people on the planet we're supposed to be the good news to people whether or not people want to accept it we're just meant to be those people that when we show up people go oh i'm glad you're here because i know you're going to help and i know you're going to have good things to say Hmm. and i guess even back then coming back i we started to recognize that that wasn't always the case yeah. And, learn. and I think even more so now. Oh, yeah, really. My, you know. so yeah, my heart is grieved. I had a New York Times reporter ask me about a year ago, um, interviewing me for the book. He said, so um, I see that you are an evangelical. Are you still evangelical? <laughs> 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 and I, I was able to tell him that I had this really uneasy relationship with that word because Mm -hmm. if I've learned anything living in and out of so many cultures, particularly conflict zones, war zones, pre and post, that words are are these amphibious things, right? Mm -hmm. They really mean something to us. They have real meaning and Sometimes the meanings that we haphazardly ascribe them aren't what they really mean. And they also change over time. Right. And mm-hmm. I do think that the word evangelical in the last four years, and even before that, has changed into something that I do not identify with. And 
want to hope that, I don't know, I feel a little robbed in a way. I kind of want to, I kind of want to sneak in and take it back, take my word back, you know, and say, no, that's not what we are. That's not what we believe. That's not, Mm -hmm. at least that's not what our founder believed. (laughs) Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think sure. technically that's what, you know, this God that squished himself into human skin and then died mm-hmm. uh, before love of us and for the human race, like calls all of us his creation mm-hmm. and says like, hey, you're supposed to do like what I did when I was mm-hmm. on the planet. Yeah. And honestly, Conrad, that's what that whole narrative coming back and being confronted with whoa this is like the most america is like the most foreign place to me right now and wow like i'm not even i don't even feel comfortable in church what do i do with this um led me on this journey to figuring out well what's that what's that one thing that can like can really give me a good return on investment here (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we dabbled around in this idea of like, it's, it's um, a 10 year plan or it's a influencing um, it's, it's um, educating and, or it's um, much like what so much of people do these days. It's marketing. Right. Mm. Um, and the more I dialed down on, the more I came back to this story of in, in my own life, I believe in a God that is truly empathetic. In fact, in, in our scripture, it says that we do not have, we as people on this planet that live in skin, don't have a creator that's unable to empathize with us. And that's the only time in all of the, all of the Talmud, all of the scriptures that the word empathy is used in the Hebrew, which means he's not unable to align his own thoughts and emotions with what we experience. Mm-hmm. And then I went, okay, I think, honestly, I think the power, I think the power for change, the, the thing that's going to help me not feel so helpless in how I am in my community right now, middle, middle class, middle-aged evangelical white woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And there it was. So I started my empathy journey and that's and where all did that journey take you? It took you to some pretty dangerous places. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's so, this is, this is the amazing thing. Um, I think, you know, the, the title of my book is brave souls. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think if, like, if I was to pick my book up in, in Barnes and Nobles, right. Which people can do by the way. And you should, and you should. (laughs) I pick it up. I go like, Oh, middle aged, middle-class white woman from rural Wisconsin writes a book about conflict zones and Mm. like this, the person that I say is my, my mentor and the whole story about empathy is a preliterate 50 year old woman, much like myself, who lives in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the middle of a protracted, nasty war 
right? Mm-hmm. Honestly, if I was to pick that book up, I'd flip it over, I'd look at the spine, I'd read the back, and then I'd roll my eyes and I'd say, yeah, so I think I've heard this one before and not interested, right? Mm-hmm. Just that cynicism of, you know, what does she know? Mm-hmm. And honestly, like we all deal with, I, you probably do too. Anybody that puts their voice out there deals with this whole idea of imposter syndrome, mm, right? Yeah, sure. You know, what qualifies me to actually say the things mm. that I do, but it's precisely mm. our story that qualifies us to say the things we do, right? So my story was not an eye rolling kind of story. I had lived in and out of protracted war zones for almost 10 years by that time. By the time I actually started diving into empathy. And the the journey took me to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which um, I was just there. uh, I was there a year ago this summer with Ben Affleck, um, Mm. who dearly loves... Um, the Eastern DRC, and uh, he's an active advocate for it. And then I just recently went back to be with um, some of the heroes of the Ebola crisis, which was really bizarre because as we were walking in to Beni, which is definitely a war zone, um, rebel-held territory, active burning, looting, those kind of things. We were going to meet with some of the last healthcare workers, educators, pastors, people that were saying goodbye to their last, you know, Ebola patient, the last diagnosed, um, now healed Ebola patient. And as they, as they were saying goodbye to them, COVID-19 was knocking on the world's door. Wow. So has has COVID nineteen impacted that part of Africa as well? When we were there, the world was just starting to shut down, and I remember my husband and I sitting over dinner one night. We were we were meant to be there a month, but we were two weeks into our journey, and we remember saying, you know, we really. Like the State Department didn't know what they were doing yet. They didn't know what was closing, what was opening, but our options were being limited by other countries. Technically, we were flying through Amsterdam, but Amsterdam closed. We couldn't do that. So we just noticed that pretty soon all of our options were going to close. And as we talked to our friends, you know, we were dependent on them to help us, you know, our Congolese friends to help us figure out what, what's your recommendation? What are you sensing? One of my dear friends, she was, um, she works for the World Bank. Her name is Dr. Linda Mobula. She has been on the forefront of eradicating Ebola through the Johns Hopkins wow. University for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And her perspective on COVID-19 is a really healthy one. Ebola mm-hmm. had a 90% death rate. If you got it, you died. Probably going to die. Yes. And you didn't die from the flu. Now COVID-19, it has horrible ramifications and dying Mm. is dying, right? Right. But Ebola was a very painful, particularly horrific Mm. death and um, virulent, like really no other virus on the planet. How many people died in in Africa because of because of Ebola? You know, that's a really great question. And 
I I would be lying if I knew the the accurate number for that. I do know that I know that the ninety percent death rate. You know, it's it started at sixty. Um, their first estimates were 60 and it bumped up to 80 and then it moved up to 90 at the height of, of um, the regional outbreaks that were happening. And then with containment, this is what Dr. Mobulu would say is panic isn't going to serve anyone, but preparation is. Being prepared for whatever comes is the key to dropping the number. And so after, after a lot of really smart people were working there, containment, contact tracing, all the things that we're doing right now, every corner in East Africa of every city there or in Eastern Congo has a, a World Health Organization or a United Nations hand-washing station with three or four very dutiful, super patient women with, you know, temperature takers. And, and every restaurant you went into, you had your temperature taken, you washed your hands. You did not shake hands. You elbow bumped or you namasteed or whatever <laughs> was uh, appropriate, right? And so COVID showed up in Congo and they never stopped their preparedness. Because they had already these things in place. They did. From before. They wow. did. And so when I was leaving Congo, I literally said to an interview that, that I was talking to, I said, I feel like I'm leaving the safety hmm. of people that know what they're dealing with and are taking extreme, taking it extremely seriously, not just for their own safety, but for the safety of their communities so that their actions and how they handle washing their hands and elbow bumping or namasteing or coughing had ramifications for somebody else's grandmother. And because they lived in communities that everybody knew everybody, everybody knew everybody's grandma, everybody knew each other's aunties. And, and most of the time they shared aunties. So, the communities were small enough that you did something goofy like cough in front of somebody, like into somebody's face mm -hmm. and be, you got yelled at, <laughs> right? <laughs> they wore masks still. And I have my favorite mask of, I have a number of stylish masks these days, but my favorite one is my Congolese mask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, last night I watched this 30 minute program on YouTube that it was a reporter who was pretty well known in India and she was going to some of the, some of the slums in, in Mumbai and mm -hmm. some other places in India and, and interviewing people about, about COVID and how they're dealing with it. And of mm -hmm. course they're in an extreme lockdown there, which is crazy because of oh, gosh. The, just the, the people living literally on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And so I, I saw this one family that that were living in a room about the size of my studio here. Mm -hmm. This was their house. This was their bedroom, their kitchen, their, ba their everything. Mm -hmm. And there was eight people living in there and they were supposed to be quarantined in that space, which is crazy to imagine. And then it, then they took us to another place down the street where these people were walking. One, one guy said he was walking for 1400 kilometers to, uh, to back to his home village mm -hmm. because he had no more work. Yep. And then, you know, all these other places, 
around the world that are like that. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you have this empathetic heart, how do you know where to go, what to do, who to serve? I mean, what what makes that decision? I mean, how do yeah. I know as a guy living in America, you know, with everything I need, how, how what can I do yeah. to serve the people of the world that is overwhelming? Cha-ching, right? <laughs> Million dollar question <laughs> that you just <laughs> asked, asked. And I think if I could just preface it, with just a, with with just a, a, a temperer. Did I just make that word up? <laughs> um, something that could temper what I'm about to say. I get a lot of pushback these days on my own philosophy about empathy fatigue, about compassion fatigue, whatever you want to call it, and that um, a lot of us feel strapped by just caring. For for our own safety and the safety of our families, that when we turn on the news and look at a a family of eight living in uh, a room, one room with no running water, like they can't wash their hands on a regular basis, right? You run down to the Ganges and wash your hands down there, but you and a million other people, right? Mm -hmm. Who are also doing religious um, actions still Mm -hmm. and bathing in it. And so the perspective being able to take someone's perspective, which you are, in my mind, an expert at. You have said, I want to actually use my skills and listen carefully to other people's stories. And not just listen to their stories, but kind of like read the air all around them. Um, how can I help them? How can I help my listener like hear the context that they live in. Um, and then, and then you can jump into their story and, and see their life through their eyes. So these is a family of eight living in one room, unable to wash their hands. And then you throw the whole essential thing. What is essential movement for us is I brave going to Costco once every two weeks, Right. For them, on a a family, the vast majority of which live on a $2 or less a day, if they do not leave, they do not eat. Mm -hmm. And they're probably already choosing which child eats that day anyway. Mm -hmm. So essential movement becomes a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. So taking, listening carefully to somebody's story is a skill Being able to take someone's perspective is a skill. And I call them empathy skills. And I cover both of those in the book, talking about the biological um, rewards that we get by being able to see through somebody else's eyes, which usually result in this shot of this awesome hormone called oxytocin, which is the compassion hormone or the kindness hormone, when we choose to listen carefully, when we choose to see somebody else's story, our body and the culture reward us with uh, not just a settledness, not just a peace, but a hope that things can be better than they are. And which one of us gets fatigued by hope? 
So that leads me into this whole idea of what I'm about to say. When I say empathy, I don't think it's what we think it is. (laughs) Um, The thing that fatigues us, the thing that drives us outside of like our own, like physical, emotional, mental ability to take someone's story, no matter how hard it is to hear or take lots and lots of stories. Like my aunt is sick right now. That's taxing me. I can't possibly think about starvation in South Sudan. Hmm. Right. You hear it all the time. I get that pushback all the time. And honestly, I'm the, I have a total occupational hazard in that being called the empathy lady is like, no, you don't, y'all don't understand. The reason I wrote the book is because I'm bad at this. Right. So I enter my story as this kind of curious girl um, growing into somebody who's done a little bit of the world and yet in my faith journey I chose what I say a posture to listen and see other people through and part of it was my evangelical upbringing I called high functioning Christian apathy Mm. and it, it honestly Conrad, between you and me, I worry it's a disease that a lot of us have, but we don't know it because it's apathy, right? Mm -hmm. So my approach to other people's suffering in this world, whether it's, whether it's, you know, early on um, living in mercy ships and traveling to post-conflict zones and pre-conflict zones, or whether it's going to Congo and meeting a woman named Esperance who showed me that um, loving another human being looks a lot like being able to listen to their story, no matter how hard it is, and take their perspective, almost like holding it in your hands. We, even if it's a little traumatizing to do so, right? It's taxing and it requires something of my emotions and my mind. She showed me that to know someone, to actually know their story, to know where they come from, to to be curious about them is a skill. To care about someone is a skill. And she did all of that as a preliterate woman living in a protracted war zone, having experienced some of the most vicious, um, terrible um, behavior humanity has to dole out. She was a rape survivor whose husband was murdered in front of her and whose children were separated from her while she was fleeing this violence. Esperance was found in this state um, by a group of other Congolese women who had experienced similar things. They found her, picked her up, literally picked her up out of the Virunga National Forest where she was left for dead by the rebel militia that had raped her. They took her to the to their um, village, cleaned her, clothed her, fed her, 
stayed with her for the month-long rape treatment that was required so that she didn't die of disease or internal injuries or um, mental injuries. They stayed with her for the nine months that it took for her to bring her son to birth, which was her choice. And then they stayed with her for another year as Esperance chose to become a trauma counselor, a lay trauma counselor that goes into the forest and finds women like her and walks them through. So she literally went and made her life the very moment that she was most traumatized, the place that that she would never want to go back to becomes the thing that is most valuable to her for the sake of others. Wow. That, um, that kind of empathy was nowhere on my radar. Hmm. My kind of empathy looked like what I was talking about, this high functioning Christian apathy. Hmm. So if Esperance's example of empathy was, I am going to use even my most painful places in my world to understand what another person is going through, to know about them. And I'm going to allow myself to, f- to hold space with them, to actually feel some emotions for their pain. I'm going to know about them. I'm going to care about them. And then those two things informed every action she took towards the person in front of her, right? So it's knowing plus caring plus action equals empathy, right? It's kind of an elegant little equation. So knowing plus caring plus action. Right. And Mm -hmm. if you want to get technical, it's affective, it's cognitive empathy, which is the use of perspective taking. Hmm. Affective empathy, which is engaging the, the hormonal response that we have to our own emotions to dig deep enough to find an emotion that connects with somebody else's emotions, to recognize and feel what they're feeling, right? Plus, those two things then inform how we behave towards that person. When I watch you tell your story, how I, how I react to your story actually helps you define your story. That becomes motivational empathy, right? God bless University of Michigan just came out with a beautiful study on the nature of motivational empathy, which is a thing. What lines up in our body and in our mind so that we actually put on a mask for somebody else's grandma and COVID, right? Mm. Motivational empathy. Mm. For Esperance, it meant that she had to go to the most painful place in her mind and in her geography to actually do what she thought was her mission in the world. Mm. For me, I was really good with the whole knowing side of things, right? So I was happy to diagnose the problem. I could Google with the best of them. I read tons of books. I loved my degrees, right? And 
if somebody was in pain in front of me, I would kind of approach them from that, from that way. Like, oh, I can see your perspective and here's your problem. And then never lift a finger to actually help them do it. Right. Because I actually was like, you know, don't mistake me understanding what you're going through right now for actually caring about what you're going through. (laughs) Right. And so my actions towards them looked a lot like diagnosis. That is high functioning Christian apathy. We love to diagnose the problem. That's the so good. At Do you think caring. sometimes, and, and there's no fault in this. In fact, my wife and I support a kid through an organization mm-hmm. where we you, you give a monthly donation and yeah. somehow it, it magically supports the Turns kid. into a goat, yes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and do you think sometimes that is what has been preached to evangelicals around the country, to Christians around oh, the country yeah. as making a difference in the world and yeah. doing our evangelical duty? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I have thoughts on that, definitely. <laughs> but I think like if we flip that coin, that... Uh, that sponsor a kid coin. Now, mind you, I, I have dear friends at World Vision and lovely friends at Compassion. And I do think there's a way to do that right. Mm-hmm. And you being a story expert, I think that you and your wife probably do it right. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people that haphazardly say, yeah, my kid on the fridge. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah. oh, wait a second. Yeah. Do you know that kid? Do you care about Mm -hmm. that kid? And how are your actions motivated towards that Mm -hmm. kid right now on -hmm. your fridge, right? Right. So we flip the coin over, right? So we've got this high-functioning apathy, which is like happy to diagnose the problem for you. Don't mistake it for me actually wanting to help, right? (laughs) So that is my help, by the way, for me to diagnose it and let you sit Mm -hmm. there in it, right? Mm -hmm. So... You flip it and you've got this other side that if that's apathy, then you flip it, you've got sympathy. And sympathy looks a lot like, um, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you are in so much pain and I feel so bad for you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, but you don't, we don't need to really talk about it. You don't really, I'm good. I totally get that you're in pain. Don't worry about talking to me about it right? Mm. Because it's Mm. just so hard. It's so Mm. painful for me to listen to what you're saying, or it's so much work for me to figure out why there's a war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Or, you know what? Honestly, in the Midwest, ain't nothing that a tater tot casserole can't fix, (sighs) right? So good enough. I showed Mm. you I cared. I really don't need to know. Mm-hmm. And that, that informs all of my actions towards you. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of sentimental sympathy, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on my definition there for that too, mm-hmm. but um, defending what happens in your body biologically, it, it, um, this rush of wanting to engage another person just from your own perspective I feel pain for you as Mm. opposed to you feel this pain and I'm going to connect with something inside of me that feels that too. Mm. But you don't do that in a vacuum. You don't check your brain and Mm. not figure out what that, why 
the curiosity falling away leaves you just with a really limiting response to other people's pain, which is sympathy. So for me, right now, we've got two options. We've got sympathy. And in the COVID era, that might look a little like, I don't read the papers because that number going up every day really depresses me. But man, I just feel really sad all the time, right? Mm. The apathy would be like, man, I religiously watch all the news. I read it all. I understand virus. I can talk endlessly at the dinner table about policy and all that and not shed a single tear for the fact that, Mm. you know, the New York Times, I don't know if your listeners have gotten a hold of, you know, the three unending pages of names Mm -hmm. of people that died in America. That is an exercise. Reading that is an exercise in empathy that we can do today. Right. 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 Then there's this one more thing. I live in rural Michigan right now and I love rural Michigan. I feel it's very much home for me. It's super, super Midwest. And you know, there's Mm -hmm. quite a bit of tater tot casseroling, (laughs) but it's just left at your door now, as opposed to, you know, somebody (laughs) handing it to you. You can't come in, right? Right. But as we were talking about before, you know, um, just down the road from us, a, uh, a dollar store, employee, a security guard was shot dead because he told an individual that they had to wear, their child had to wear a mask and they flipped and ended up, you know, leaving and on purpose coming back and shooting that security guard. That kind of deep, um, me, mine, uh, my perspective, my opinion, my rights, my individualism leads us to inevitably, I think, to this other pathos. Like if it's not sympathy, it's not apathy, and it's not empathy, it leads us to this place of antipathy, which mm. is basically the only thing left. And it's like, I don't know, and I don't care. You just crossed me, and so I'm going to unload on you. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes it sounds like protest, you know, me and mine, mm-hmm. like what I saw a sign protesting up here during the gridlock in um, Detroit that said the sign that this woman was holding actually said, my freedom, my body, my freedom, sacrifice the weak. And I thought, that's an antipathy message. Mm-hmm. That is, I am not engaging my brain or my heart, and my actions are informed towards the people in front of me accordingly. Mm-hmm. So if we're left with those four options for how to respond to other people's pains, that was my choice. I was so bad at it, like I said. I'm like, okay, eeny, meeny, money, mo. Do I want to be angry? Do I want to be sappy? Do I want to, you know, be doctor so and so and impress people with my brain? Or do I actually want to be helpful? Mm-hmm. There is only one quadrant in that. Um, in those four choices that actually provides us as humans answers to problems, to real problems. We think clearly, we fear, cl- feel clearly, we act clearly, and that should inform our policy, right? 
of mm-hmm. our own personal actions, but also our government's actions. That's empathy. That's the only place we should be rolling around in right now when we're deciding what to do with whether or not we're going to put on a mask or whether or not we're going to wash our hands or whether or not we're going to socially distance. It has real consequences right now. I was talking with my wife yesterday. We talk a lot, especially these days. That's awesome. Yes. (laughs) No choice. (laughs) (laughs) But we were just saying how, okay, what if, you know, like in China, they're having, you know, they're, they're you know, locking things back up again yeah. in certain yep. areas. Yep. I said, if that comes back in October or November this year, I think we're going to see yeah. massive, I mean, we could see revolution here because people are just not going to, not going to follow. Yep. They're just going to do, you know, we have that American independent spirit that yep. says, I know what's best for me. I'm going to do what I think is good for me. Yeah. And that's all that matters. Yep. That individualism, I think, that that we're going to see some major things happen, I think, that we've never seen before in our country. I agree with you, Conrad. Yeah, it's going to be scary. It is. The question I hear frequently when I'm talking at dinner parties or on podcasts is, well, if you're, if you're saying we should know and care, Belinda, about, like, we have the capacity to do that for just about anything, then why? Why should we know and care? And you just hit on the very reason. I think as human beings, we always have ideologies, right? And our ideologies drive us. But in the annals of human history, if we go back over time, we can directly trace the loss of empathy to the rise of atrocities. Hmm. And I live and work, my organization, One Million Thumbprints, lives and works to collect the stories of women who live, whose stories include atrocities. Why? Mostly because the cultures that they live in, somewhere along the way, us as created beings, these beautifully created beings by, in my in my ideology by a God that was super intentional and said, I'm going to make humans this way. And isn't that awesome? And then I'm going to go hang out with him for a while. And he does. And, and then he says, yeah, the way I behaved on earth is the way that you should behave. And the way he behaved was to actually know and care about the creatures he created. Right. So this, idea that we are in, you know, technically lots of studies on empathy out there. Technically, we are in what people have called an empathy epidemic, right? A Or an apathy epidemic. Sorry about that. Apathy epidemic, which I giggle at now. I'm like, dang, that actually means something now. Um, people can have a understanding of it. If we're in one of the lowest empathy troughs of history, University of Michigan did a 40-year study and came out with their results two years ago that said 40% of the people that they interviewed two years ago have significantly less empathy than they did for their counterparts 40 years ago, right? Pretty scary. It really is. So like there's proof out there that we're in this empathy dip, Mm. right? 
a lot of people call it an empathy gap. If that's the- What do you think is the cause of that? <laughs> I think the, the whole premise of Brave Souls is that I think empathy is uh, much more like a spiritual discipline that we engage with our whole being and can learn. Mm. Whereas I think that up to now, not that I've invented anything new, I'm not an innovator. I'm only a collector of good thought, right? Mm. And lined it up because I was so terrible. And I'm like, what will help me in this? I think prior to this moment, we've treated empathy a lot like something that happens to us as opposed to something that we happen to, something that we purposely engage. And a study just came out from the University of Pennsylvania that said, get this, oh my gosh. I was like, I'm shot. This study just came out. Nobody's ever gonna buy my book again, right? <laughs> this is what they said. They did a two-year study with folk from across the socioeconomic spectrum here in America, different age ranges, different cultures, different um, perspectives. And this was their question. They're like, why is empathy in a trough? Why aren't people using what seems to be this only area of power, of places that we can make really good choices, the only area where actually we feel freedom as opposed to control? Because like apathy is super controlling. Mm. Antipathy is super controlling. You're not in charge of what you are doing. Mm. Sympathy, and you're just driven by your emotions. You want to do the life like that? I want to do life in a place of freedom, right? So they're like, well, why aren't people doing it? This is what they found out. It's hard. <laughs> Really? It's <laughs> really hard. That, I couldn't believe it. Like literally the one sentence. That was their, that was their th official yes. result. They, they, their official result was that people avoid empathy, motivational empathy, which is the outworking of cognitive and affective empathy mm -hmm. and working in harmony. They avoid motivational empathy because it's really hard. Yeah. And I wonder how much money they spent on that study to, to figure oh out God. that it's hard. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I have this friend in Congo that you could have talked to for free, totally, <laughs> really. Right. And she would have taught you a thing or two. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about A Million Thumbprints. Oh, it's funny because I wake up every morning and I think, oh my gosh, why did I name it a million thumbprints? Why couldn't I have named? If I would have named it 10,000 thumbprints, I'd be, I'd be in my sweet spot right now and be done. When I first talked to my friend Esperance and she, she very generously gave me this story of suffering that she, that was like definitive of her. It's super trusting very vulnerable space, right? And I felt for the first time in my life, I was like, ooh, it's a gift. I need to hold it like that gently, carefully, and don't I dare, you know, treat it flippantly. I need to know more about this and why the conflict in Congo. And I need to touch something in my own life that is similar to her pain so that I get the story, right? That story was given to me with a mandate. So I was writing for Newsweek at the time. And the, the byline for Newsweek was um, Mother's Day in a war zone. Hmm. And Esperance and I were together. 
um, at Mother's Day. So I was going to submit my story and like all good, you know, outlets, they wanted a release form. Esperance is preliterate. I have my own ethical storytelling understanding. And so I'm like, okay, Esperance, take as long as you want to consider this. And let's get you somebody that you really trust that can walk you through what this means if you're going to sign it. And she chose her pastor at that point. And so her pastor spent two weeks walking her through, you know, what does it mean to have somebody in Newsweek read your story? And I mean, it's still pretty, pretty out there, but she's super like, she gets it intuitive understanding and as a preliterate woman she got like super frustrated flip had uh her pastor flip over the um release form and she said write this tell the world my story because that was what she wanted done Mm -hmm. and she took her thumbprint which is the way she procured goods and services from the UN, the way she voted, which is a very precious thing in Congo, the way she identified herself at the clinics that she went to. Her thumbprint was her most intimate biometric identifier that actually unlocked whether or not she was going to live or die. So it was her story. And she put it right underneath those words tell the world my story. And I had come home by then because it was, I didn't want to rush her. I didn't want to be sitting there waiting for, you know, before I posted my story. So I, I just hung on to it. I hung on to the story and waited for Esperance's permission. And when it finally arrived in my inbox and I opened that email, those words, you know, a scanned version of those words and that thumbprint is what I saw. And honestly, nothing has been the same since that moment. It wasn't just a good idea anymore. It wasn't just a problem to be diagnosed and solved. It wasn't just, oh, doesn't that, isn't, it's so sad, isn't it? It wasn't, I'm so ticked that there's war. It wasn't any of those. It was, this is a brave soul who lives in a real place, in a real body, and she is doing something right. Hmm. And I want to be able to communicate that. And she's not the only one. So that name, One Million Thumbprints, comes from the UN statistic that one in three women on our planet experience this violent gender-based actions that people take towards them. So gender-based violence is real, not just in war zones, but here in your backyard, Mm -hmm. in our homes. And it's not just the story of one person. It's actually a statistic too, right? So data and story are powerful motivators. One Million Thumbprints summarizes that. It's The thumbprint is the individual stories of women who experience gender-based violence and conflict zones. And there are millions of them calling out to us right now saying, hear my story, tell my story, understand my story, and then do something about it. 
have empathy. I call it holy empathy, right? So that's why we exist. We, um, we catalyze the voice of women who survive gender-based violence and conflict zones. We fund programs for educational and economic empowerment for women. That's like um, in conflict zones, education and economic opportunity is like putting armor around them. It's literally giving them protection. We build, we work to build the capacity for resilience. I believe women are, um, that face of adversity are some of the most resilient people on the planet. And then we use all, we use all of the, the reason I ask people to not only listen and bear witness to the thumbprints of the women who give their stories. I ask other people to give their own thumbprints because that's what Esperance called me to do. I, that thumbprint popped up in my email and I printed off a copy and I put my own thumbprint next to hers and said, me too. I understand. And that's what I ask people to do. Put some skin in the game as an act of empathy would you give your thumbprint? Because there's two kinds of currencies in the world, right? For me, they come in the form of thumbprints. The first kind of thumbprint currency, the more I gather, if I can get a million thumbprints someday, there is not a policy door that I couldn't open, Hmm. right? And say, hey, listen to what these women say and what they're asking for. Let their voice be heard, understand their stories. And so that's a kind of currency. That's why I ask people to sign our petition with their thumbprint. The other kind of currency is, hey, you know, give us five bucks because that $5 actually translates into armor for these women that are surviving some of the most horrific experiences on the planet. And now, honestly, more than ever, not just conflict, right? So poverty and war do not take a break for a pandemic. They just become right. a two front war, right? Right. What an amazing story and amazing life you've had. <laughs> Looking back at your life so far, what's been the highlight for you? I think the highlight for me is every time I sit down, I call it bearing witness to someone's story, right? Of adversity, of struggle, no matter how painful it is, every time I sit down to bear witness to someone's story, it is still so new and so, um, so engaging. And I realize I still have so much to learn. And that gives me deep hope and deep motivation that story by story, thumbprint by thumbprint, change will be made. Because honestly, it's, it's that little girl outsider from the Midwest that kind of saw things from an oblique angle, from, from a different angle that is now connecting with people who also consider themselves outsiders, who see things from not the center, but a whole different peripheral angle. And I actually think it's the best view. I think you see things pretty clearly that you wouldn't necessarily from dead center. That's my motivation. 
Very cool. Very cool. So here comes the big question. Okay. So when, when the movie about your life is made, <laughs> what will the log line be? Lord almighty. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I make movies and make documentaries. And so whenever I'm doing the marketing for that, I write this phrase, a sentence that describes the movie. Oh my so gosh. The movie about your life is made. What will the log line be? <laughs> oh, that's so funny because I had a friend ask me, Hey, what's your walk-up song? Do you know? <laughs> right. So I'm like, she's like, if you're a professional baseball player and you're getting ready to bat, what song are they playing as you're walking up? So it's these kind of questions that I'm like, A, I don't think I'm ever going to have a walk-up song. Remember I'm an outsider and B, I don't think there'll ever be a movie, but, but if there is, I think that, I think that, well, let me, let me do this for you. In a world without empathy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a great beginning. <laughs> really, because war is hell and so is competition. And I would, I would rather see us become tribe than traitor. I would rather see us have compassion than competition. And I would love one day to see a world that is really skilled in knowing and caring and then acting on those two things. Um, but the only way we do that is by being able to hold each other's stories. So Conrad, you keep doing what you do. I keep doing what I do. And one thumbprint at a time, I think we actually make a change. Belinda, thank you for telling your story. I hope that all of us have a better understanding of what it means to have empathy. And I pray that as our nation continues to grapple with racism and injustices, I pray that all of us will truly learn that empathy is knowing plus caring plus our action. Let's all take action when the world is looking for people to have empathy and to understand. Let's not just say we understand. Let's not just pretend we understand. Let's put our words into action and do something about it. Okay, now for the book giveaway. If you want to have an opportunity to win a free copy of Belinda's book, Brave Souls, Go to our Facebook page, the My Story Podcast, like it, and then look for a post with the book and then share it with your tribe. That'll put your name in for the random drawing. Hey, I'd really love it if you'd write a review for this podcast. I want to know if you're enjoying these stories or not. If you leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or on the podcast page on Podbean, it really helps us spread the message about what we're doing. And thanks for listening and thanks for sharing. The music on today's show is from my friend Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. And if you like what you heard today, there's more coming next week. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that these episodes show up right there on your device. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. <laughs>